defeated. Holy Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can be here today to hear your word and receive you in word and sacrament. We ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so we can hear your words and be changed. So we can leave here changed by your Spirit. Lord, help us to surrender our lives to you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this morning before the service, uh, Chris told me that there was an article on the Destin Log. Maybe you saw this article um, a few days ago. And this article said that Florida, not California, not New York, not any other state, but Florida was declared the most sinful state in the United States. Amen. <laughs> At least we admit it. That's, that's a first step. Absolutely. So yeah, we're, we're, we are, uh, yeah, we're the most sinful state. In the early service, they blamed it all the on all the visitors. But I think we, we should be really honest with ourselves, and we can't just blame it on all the tourists. So it seems fitting that uh, during our Lenten season, we are reflecting on the seven deadly sins, which this article used at least five of to, to prove that we are the most sinful state. So this week, we continue our journey through Lent towards Holy Week, examining the seven deadly sins or capital vices. And last week, Father Caleb uh, opened us up by considering the root of all capital vices, pride. And it was summed up in the not-so-timeless words, at least I hope they won't be timeless, words of frozen, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. We heard him sing it last week. We don't need to hear it again. <laughs> the prideful person stands before God and the world and says, my will be done, not yours. And last week, we also learned that the antidote to pride is the healing humility of Jesus Christ that he gives us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit teach us to say, not my will, O Father, but yours be done. So last week we learned about pride, and we learned that it's the, the godfather of vices, if you will. And this week we will consider two of pride's descendants, greed and envy. So we don't have to look too far in our lives, society and Florida apparently, uh, to see greed and envy at work. Uh, I believe that uh, greed was, was shown in this article, as it was proved that by all the casinos that we have and, and other things like that. Either way, um, you can also think of plenty of examples of greed in our culture. There are whole TV shows, and I, I confess I don't watch these, but um, they exist, um, built on the premise of, greedy, of, of greed in people's lives. Hoarders, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, greed. Confessions of a shopaholic. Greed. They're just two examples. And when you think of envy, um, think of the, 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 the really great childhood, uh, child story, children's story, Toy Story, the movie, first one, when, uh, when Woody meets Buzz. Buzz is the cool and flashy new toy, and Woody gets really envious. He doesn't just get jealous, he gets envious, and he wishes that, w Woody wishes that Buzz would just go away. Maybe that Buzz would get eaten by the dog in that story. Or think of, of the, the guilty pleasure you feel when you see someone like a, a a Lance Armstrong or a, um, oh, who's the golfer? Help me out here. Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods. When you see just that little, like, mm, I'm kind of glad they, they failed. Like, that felt good to know that someone so successful falls. That's envy peeking its ugly head. As we consider the vices of greed and envy, let us ask the Holy Spirit 
to open our minds and hearts to places where greed and envy have taken root. So come, Holy Spirit, and work, and be at work in us. In the 1987 movie, Wall Street, Gordon Gekko, who makes a living by taking over companies to sell for profit, preaches the gospel of greed. This is what he says. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for the lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of humanity. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar papers, but the, uh, that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. That, my friends, is the gospel of greed. And it sounds yeah, interesting, at least, maybe a little tempting, but I submit to you that greed is, in fact, anti-gospel. It is not good news. So to begin our discussion of greed, Rebecca DeYoung defines greed as follows. Greed is an excessive love of or desire for money or any possession money can buy. So to be clear, greed is not simply having money and possessions. They're not a bad, money and possessions aren't bad in and of themselves. Greed is the excessive love of money and possessions. That is where the problem lies. So, for example, consider the contrast of two characters in this story, A Christmas Carol. You probably know where I'm going with this. Bob Cratchit, though poor, was content with the money, family, and possessions he had. He liked his life. He had a good life. And by great contrast, Ebenezer Scrooge was not content. He was greedy. He loved money excessively, so much so that he didn't own that many possessions. We know him as a miser, as a hoarder. And perhaps when you think of greed, this is the image that comes to mind. When I think of greed and Ebenezer Scrooge, I actually think of Scrooge McDuck in the really great Disney rendition of that movie as he's bathing in his many coins of gold. It's beautiful. It's greed. It's right there, right in front of you. And many of us probably don't think of ourselves as Ebenezer Scrooge bathing in money, but we should consider that how, though we might not be able to bathe in our money, we should ask, how much do we account on our bank accounts for security? How much do we mentally bathe in the money we have stored up? Um, but greed just isn't, isn't just about hoarding. Um, and it's also about the excessive acquiring of money and possessions. Here's some statistics about the sh shopping habits of Americans. 96% of adults and 95% of teens admit they participate in some form of retail therapy. We really like shopping and it feels good. 33% of Americans shop online at least once per week. 69% online at least monthly. I am online shopping in some form once a day. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here. <laughs> <laughs> on average, and this is a sad statistic, on average an American between the ages of 18 and 65 have $4,717 worth of credit card debt. More than a third of Americans and adults, uh, of adults and teens, said shopping makes them feel better than working out. You heard it here, folks. If you want to feel good, don't work out, go shop. 
I believe these are telling statistics. Money and stuff are our therapy. And the culture around us, the culture of acquiring, is a well-tuned machine to make us feel good and forget everything else. I'm sure all of you have, the, have known the bewitching endorphin rush when we buy something new where you find a really, really, really good deal you just can't pass up. That 50% off rack. You shop, you hunt, and you feel the great joy of finding just the right thing, and then you have it, and oh, what pleasure, and then mm, the feeling passes, and it goes away, and, and you have to go back. You try to find that feeling again and, and up it maybe a little bit. And like a drug, you're always going for that higher, high, and higher, high. I would propose to you that shopping, in fact, for Americans, many of us, is very much like a drug. But maybe you aren't identifying with this. How about luxury? You guys lux like luxurious things, the elite, the best, your BMWs, your Porsches. Uh, someone who, who Rebecca DeYoung interacts with, James Twitchell, defines luxury as something we absolutely do not need. <laughs> luxury is something we absolutely do not need. And the whole of our economy is built on selling things we don't need. <laughs> Think through your garage, your storage unit, your spare room, your walk-in closet. What kind of luxuries do you have? How much stuff do you really need? So whether you hoard or acquire or a bit of both, have you noticed something about yourself? If you really think about it, when you look at your house and your home, you look at your bank account, have you noticed that the more you own something, the more you are owned by it? The very thing that said, buy me, I'll make you feel happy, good, pretty, adventurous, etc., begin to possess you. How much time do you spend on your things, maintaining, upkeep? making sure you always have the next season of cool clothes. Hoarding and acquiring are, unfortunately, just the tip of the greed iceberg. <laughs> We're not done yet. <laughs> Our desire to have it all doesn't just affect us. It would be really nice if, if my greed and my desire to acquire things was just about me and me and my own little autonomous bubble and it didn't hurt anybody else. But the fact of the matter is greed affects our families, our neighbors, and society. And scripture is clear as we heard in Jer Jeremiah 6, 9 through 13, greed is not good news. Greed is like, the Midas, is like King Midas's golden touch. Everything he touches turned to gold and was destroyed. That is what greed does to our lives. Greed creates rampant social injustice. The Old Testament scholar, evangelical Christian scholar, uh, Christopher Wright, summarizes how the Bible by and large, and especially the Old Testament, looks at poverty. Most people, he says, are made poor by the actions of others, directly or indirectly. Poverty is caused, he says, and the primary cause is the exploitation of others by those whose, whose own selfish interests are served by keeping others poor. If I had have more than what I need, or can ever possibly want, someone else doesn't have it. And according to the scriptures, this is an injustice. Compare the inequality and greedy per the, the, the inequality that a greedy person creates to this, this definition I'm about to give you of a generous person. 
according to Thomas Aquinas. And this is a very jarring definition, so I want you to hear it clearly. Has two, it's a two-part statement. First, Thomas just makes a statement about people in general. He says, it is enough for people to have only a few things. Let that settle in. Only a few things. It is enough. That's good. If you have a few things, you're good. A generous person is commendable because, in general, they give away more than they keep. A generous person is commendable because they give more than they ever could keep. The generous person is not attached to their wealth or possessions, so they can share freely. My friends, greed is not good news. It is an evil vice that rips people and society apart. Rebecca, again, the young, gets at the heart of greed when she says, greed is the temptation to try to create security for ourselves by procuring and providing for ourselves rather than trusting God for what we need. It is easier to delude ourselves into thinking that we must provide for ourselves than it is to trust that God provides. Greed leads us right back to the godfather of pride, godfather vice, pride. Rebecca again says, prideful greed is the desire to take over God's rule and make sure we get enough for ourselves, or better yet, to make sure we get what we want. The person who struggles with greed says to God and the rest of the world, I want it all, and so my will be done and not yours. Get out of my way. So, this is not good news. And with the anti-gospel greed, according to Gordon Gecko, exposed, we now turn to envy, personified in the Pixar movie, The Incredibles, one of my favorites. Hopefully you've seen it. If you haven't, go rent it. There's a great story of family, heroism, and adventure that turns, the plot turns on the infectious and destructive power of envy. So in this movie, the world exists with superheroes by the dozens. They fight villains, are force of good for, in society, and their supernatural abilities are appreciated and admired by all. They have a place in society to rescue and save the world. But one day, the main character of the story, Mr. Incredible, is met by a young boy named Buddy with a genius for technology who has given himself the title Incrediboy. Incrediboy wants to be a superhero, but unfortunately, he doesn't have any superpowers. So he tries to make himself super by building gadgets and, and, and things that will allow him to have these crazy powers. And in his jealousy at the beginning of the story, he, he kind of inadvertently brings the whole worlds of the whole superhero world down and they all have to go into hiding and the story continues. At the beginning of the story, the, the contrast between jealousy and envy um, are highlighted. So at the beginning, Buddy, who was the incredible boy, is jealous of all the superheroes. He wants to be like them. He wants to be a superhero. That's jealousy. I want a BMW like my neighbor has. Envy says, I want his BMW. Not a BMW like his, his. And, I, and gosh darn it, I just hope his BMW gets destroyed so I feel a little better. Incrediboy didn't just say, I want to be like these superheroes. He said, I want to be these superheroes. And so the story continues by him trying to destroy the whole world of superheroes, murdering all the superheroes so that he can be the only one. And I propose that this is the, a very good, if not perfect, image of how Envy works. 
Peter Kreft says it this way. Envy looks up and says, I want you to be below me. Incredible looked up and said, I will destroy you. Okay, but you might say, I don't hate anybody. I don't really want to see the downfall and destruction of my enemy. Excuse me. I might have a rival at work that I kind of wish I was as successful at him, as him or her, but I don't want to see him die. Okay, that's fair. Most of us probably don't live in that world of hate. But let me offer another example. So when I was growing up, I had a lot of good friends in high school and junior high, and um, a lot of them were really athletic and active. And to my annoyance, they could eat whatever they wanted. And I couldn't. I was that chubby kid who wasn't that athletic and who always wanted to be hanging out with these guys, but I couldn't do that. It was rough. I didn't like it. And I didn't like myself. I didn't like who I was. So during high school, junior high and high school, I started turning my life around for myself. Started getting in better shape. I started eating better. And I kind of, you know, felt a little better than all of my friends because I had to be more disciplined. I had to work for it. You know, life goes on. You graduate from high school. You go to college. You come back to visit your friends over the summer. And to my guilty pleasure, one of my best friends gained a little weight. And I hadn't. In fact, I looked pretty good. And uh, I felt pretty good. I was, I was satisfied. I was like, yeah, about time for you to all that junk food catch up to you. <laughs> I'm sure we've all had thoughts like this. <laughs> and my friends, that's envy. That's envy at work in our hearts. And the root of envy was all the way back when I decided that I was going to take over and form my identity. I was going to say, I know who I am. I know what I want to be. Far be it from anybody else to tell me. I tried to create my own identity. I put my identity and self-worth in something other than Christ. I did this because I didn't like myself. I didn't like who I was. My friends, that's pride. And we again, again, we can see that pride Envy is rooted in pride. So friends, do you put your identity in something or someone else other than Christ and your achievements? And maybe, just maybe, or probably, you celebrate when someone who you envy falls just a little. Greed is all about self-sufficiency. Envy is all about self-made identity. So how does Jesus meet the greedy an envious person, this person who struggles with these vices in their prison. Imagine a place with you, with me, where you don't have to worry about your security or your daily needs. Imagine a place where you are loved, truly loved and known, and absolutely precious in God's eyes, without a doubt. That place is the kingdom of God, my friends. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is his kingdom manifesto. The proclamation of what life with Jesus is like. 
If you've ever perused Matthew 5 through 7, you know that his kingdom is very, 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 very different from the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is the gospel that destroys the anti-gospel of greed and envy. In our scripture passages today, Jesus speaks to the anxiety, the fear, the pride, and loss of identity that ensnares the person who struggles with greed and envy. So we pick up in verse 19, and Jesus tells us, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now in this passage, heart means your desires, what we love and care for most, what we orient our entire life towards. A greedy person's love is bound up with money, with the excessive love of money and possessions. An envious person's love is bound by their self-hate and their dislike of others. And in contrast, a person of the kingdom of God values above all else the pearl of great price, Jesus Christ, who provides them with true security and identity. In the next verses we see in verse 22 and 23, a picture of the envious person. Their loss of identity and their self-hate and dislike of others lead them to not to be blinded to reality. Their eyes are bad. They cannot see the world as it is. They are blinded by their self-hate and narcissistic self-definition. And in verse 24, the greedy person, the person who struggles with greed, is bound to one master. He cannot serve two. Their excessive love of money and possessions. So we see in scripture that envy blinds and greed is slavery. And what is Jesus' response? Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In the kingdom of God, life is not a dog-eat-dog competition for the most stuff and the highest rank. In God's kingdom, we do not have to define ourselves and destroy others through our hate. In God's kingdom, we are freed from having to be our own gods. And the reason for this is that there is more to life than us, more to life than my little kingdom. Our meaning, our security come from God and not our success or material wealth. In God's kingdom, life it's about living every day in communion with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the true meaning and security that reorients our heart's desire from, desire from inside, from our own concerns, our own pride towards God. In this kingdom, we don't have to hoard or acquire because we have a heavenly Father who provides for our daily needs. We do not have to be anxious. If God takes care of his lilies and his birds, how much more will he take care of his children? The greedy don't have to be self-sufficient. God is their good God. My friends, when we are in relationship with God, our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, this world is a perfectly safe place to be. This world is a perfectly safe place to be. God provides for the one who struggles with envy as well. He offers them freedom from hate by telling them they are loved, totally and absolutely loved. That is your identity. Humanity's true identity is found not in self-definition, but in communion with God. Jesus' answer then to our greed and envy 
is the gift of life with him. On the cross, Jesus took our greed and gave us his contentment and generosity. On the cross, Jesus took our envy and gave us his identity as beloved children of God. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to convict and weed out those roots of pride, greed, and envy. And he does this so we can day, day by day, moment by moment, become more content and settle more into the reality of our belovedness. My friends, Jesus is with us. We're safe. We can let go of grief. Jesus is with us. We are beloved. We can surrender our envy. So as Christians, we've, we've been given the greatest gift. We have been wrapped in the glorious love of God in Christ. And through the Holy Spirit, we're called to grow. We're called to grow in Christ-likeness day by day. And friends, this doesn't happen by osmosis, no matter how much we would like it to. You can't just put the Bible under your pillow and, and become more holy. This takes real effort and steady action. So let me suggest some practical antidotes to greed and envy as I close. As we saw in our scripture passage, we saw Jesus doing this, he, he, we should reflect on reality. Really reflect on what the world is really like, not how we think it is. How greed, because greed destroy, distorts our reality, our ability to see the world. Really think about how much you can be in control of. How much does your worrying really change the day? How much money truly, how does money really truly secure for you? When we think about it, the illusion of self-sufficiency just crackles in the air. It becomes dust, and our sense of control slips away. And when we think about it, uh, excuse me, <laughs> the fact of the matter is you can't even control the things, the thoughts that go through your own mind. Think through your day and think about all the random stuff that goes through your mind. You can't control that. Can you control your life? And my friends, no matter how hard I work, I can't con guarantee my safety, shelter, food, or security. I can't guarantee that, that the safety and security of my family, my daughter and my wife, can all slip away in an instant. We only need to look at the world and see that. So friends, this, this could be a really depressing conclusion. You're not in control. Well, that, okay. But there is good news. Because I am not in control, but my good Father and God is. And because God is good and loves me, I can surrender my life to him and my will to him. And friends, when we are wanting to put off greed, we, we need to put other things off. As we are convicted of greed in our lives, and the Holy Spirit is working in us, there are things we can stop doing, things we can start doing. I would suggest to you, and I say it my, to myself, I need to stop shopping therapy. <laughs> I need to stop going to internet, the mall, or whatever. Because there's something in that that I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find meaning and value in. I'm trying to fulfill a deep longing that only God can fulfill. Friends, God loves you. And he wants to fill that hole that that therapy, that shopping therapy, is trying to, that you're trying to fill with that shopping therapy. Consider practical ways you can practice generosity, because the opposite of pride, or of greed, excuse me, is generosity and contentment. 
Think about how we tithe, how we use our time, our energy, our gifts. Think about how you can give, your, give of yourself. Think about how you can show your hospitality to your neighbors, your friends, those who do not know Jesus. These are signs of generosity growing in your life. And my friends, I would encourage you as you continue to, as you take up the sword against greed, don't do it alone. Share with your spouse, with Father Caleb or myself. We're here to encourage and help you live into the contentment that Jesus has given you already. And when it comes to dealing with envy, it is a harder thing. It is a deeper thing. Because envy is grounded, as we've seen, in a lack of self-worth and a lack of a sense of goodness about yourself, that, that you are loved. My friends, we need to be the community and be the body of Christ to help people who struggle with envy. We need to be there to help those who struggle with envy so that they can begin to believe and practice their identity that they have in Jesus Christ. If you struggle with envy, a really, really good way to get that out is just be honest about it. Be honest about it. Tell someone. You can come to Caleb and I and confess that. Not out of condemnation, but out of the desire to seek healing. And maybe next time you feel that little guilty pleasure and you see your enemy fail, pray for them instead of envy them. These are small practices we can do to start the slow ha change, changing habits, change of habits in our minds and our hearts. And my friends, this takes time. Sanctification is a lifelong effort. And it begins by realizing that God loves you and wants you to be like Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, and he gives you the Holy Spirit, who invites all of us to be free from the impression of greed and envy and hear the gospel. You are loved, deeply and truly loved, and you are safe in Jesus Christ. Amen.